Good morning. All right, we are starting our study of the book of Ephesians today, and we're gonna we're gonna jump in by watching another video. Okay, so uh, pay attention to the screens because they do in just a few minutes what would take me an hour to do. So let's let's watch this video. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The story of how Paul came to the city of Ephesus is really interesting. You can go read about it in Acts chapter 19. Ephesus was a huge city. It was the epicenter of worship for most of the Greek and Roman gods. And for over two years, Paul had a really effective missionary presence there, and lots of people became followers of Jesus. Years later, after being imprisoned by the Romans, Paul wrote this letter. The movement of thought in the letter divides into two really clear halves. In the first half, Paul is exploring the story of the gospel, how all history came to its climax in Jesus and in his creation of this multi-ethnic community of his followers. The second half of the letter is linked to the first by the word, therefore. And here Paul explores how the gospel story should affect how we live every part of our life story, personally, in our neighborhoods and communities and in our families. So let's dive in and we can see how Paul develops all of this. Chapter 1 opens with a beautiful Jewish-style poem where Paul praises God the Father for the amazing things that he has done in Christ Jesus. From eternity past, the Father has purposed to choose and bless a covenant people. And think here, the family of Abraham and Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And through Jesus now, anyone can be adopted into that family. Jesus' death covers our worst sins, our worst failures, and in Jesus we find God's grace. In fact, Paul says, that grace has opened up a whole new way for us to understand every part of our lives. He says in chapter 1, verse 10, that God's purpose was to unify all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, which is a title that means Messiah. God's plan was always to have a huge family of restored human beings who are unified in Jesus the Messiah. This divine purpose became clear, Paul says, when we were first made into that family. And here he's referring to ethnic Jews in the family of Abraham. But then Paul talks about how you, and here he means non-Jews, you all heard about Jesus and the salvation through him. And you were also brought into this family by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so here he's referring to the events told in the stories of Acts about how God's Spirit brought together Jew and non-Jew into one family in Jesus. It's just like God promised to Abraham long ago. Notice also how in this poem, Paul begins by talking about God the Father, but then about Jesus the Son, and then he here the end about the Spirit. All three work together as Paul tells the story of the gospel. It's really cool. After the poem, Paul responds with a prayer. He prays that these followers of Jesus would not just know about, but personally experience the power of the gospel, that they would be energized by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and placed him as the exalted head of the whole world. Now, in chapter two, Paul goes back and he elaborates on some key ideas from the poem in chapter one, especially God's grace and this new multi-ethnic family of Jesus. He begins by retelling the story of how these non-Jewish Christians came to know Jesus. Before hearing about Jesus, they were physically alive, but they were spiritually dead. They were trapped in a purposeless life of selfishness and sin, and they were deceived by dark spiritual forces of evil. But amazingly, God in his great love and mercy, he saved them, he forgave all of their sins, and he joined their lives to Jesus' resurrection life, and he's brought them back to life too. And so now, having been created as new human beings through Jesus, they have the joy of 
of discovering all of the new calling and purposes and tasks that God has set before them. Not only have they been shown God's grace, they've also been invited into a new family. Before hearing about Jesus, these non-Jewish people, they were not just cut off from God, they were cut off from his covenant people, the family of Abraham. And for a really practical reason, the commands of the Sinai covenant, they formed like a boundary line around the family. They were like a barrier that kept most non-Jewish people away. But in Jesus, the laws of the Torah have been fulfilled and the barrier is removed. The two ethnic groups have become, as Paul puts it, a new unified humanity that can live together in peace. So Paul goes on in chapter 3 to marvel at the unique role that he got to have in spreading this good news to non-Jewish people. And even though he's in prison, he's thanking God for the chance he's had to see this covenant family grow so huge. So Paul closes the first half of the letter with another prayer. This time he prays that Jesus' followers would be strengthened by God's Spirit to simply grasp and comprehend the love that Christ has for his people. The second half of the letter begins with Paul shifting gears, and he starts challenging the reader to respond to the gospel story by how they live their own life story. So he starts in chapter 4 with just the everyday life of the church. The church is a big family with lots of different kinds of people, but he emphasizes that they are one, and one is a key word in this chapter. They are one body that's unified by one spirit. They have one Lord with one faith. They have one baptism. They believe in one God. That's a lot of unity. However, Paul says, unity is not the same thing as uniformity. He goes on to explore how Jesus's new family consists of lots of very, very different kinds of people, but they're all empowered by the one Holy Spirit, each using their unique talents and passions to serve and to love each other and to build up the church. And here he uses two really cool metaphors. One is building up the church as a new temple. And the second is that they are all becoming a new humanity with Jesus as the head. And this new humanity is a metaphor he's going to then run with for the next couple chapters. Paul challenges every Christian to take off their old humanity, like a set of old clothes, and to put on their new humanity in which the image of God is being restored. And he then goes on into this long section where he compares this new and old humanity. So instead of lying... New humans speak truth. Instead of harboring anger, they peacefully resolve their conflicts. Instead of stealing, new humans are generous. Instead of gossiping, they encourage people with their words. Instead of getting revenge, new humans forgive. Instead of gratifying every sexual impulse, new humans cultivate self-control of their bodily desires. Instead of getting drunk, new humans come under the influence of God's spirit. And he spells out what that influence looks like in four different ways. The first two have to do with singing, singing together, but also singing alone. And this is really interesting that the first thing that Paul thinks of about how the spirit works in the lives of Jesus' people is singing and music. The third sign of the spirit's influence is being thankful for everything. And the fourth is that the Spirit will compel Jesus' followers to put themselves underneath others and to elevate others as more important than themselves. And Paul actually expands on this fourth point by showing how it works in Christian marriage. 
So you have a wife who follows Jesus. She is called to respect and to allow her husband to become responsible for her. And the husband is called to love his wife and to use his responsibility to lay down his selfish agenda and to prioritize his wife's well-being above his own. And Paul says it's this kind of marriage that's actually reenacting the gospel story. The husband's actions mimic Jesus and his love and his self-sacrifice. The wife's actions mimic the church, which allows Jesus to love her and to make her new. Paul then applies the same idea to children and parents as well as slaves and masters. Paul closes out the letter by reminding these Christians of the reality of spiritual evil. These are beings and forces that will try to undermine the unity of Jesus' people and to compromise their new humanity. And so Paul challenges them to stand firm and to put on this metaphorical set of body armor, which he describes in detail. And Paul has drawn all of these pieces of body armor from the book of Isaiah and how Isaiah depicted the messianic king. And so now, as the Messiah's followers, we need to make the Messiah's attributes our own since we make up Jesus's body. Practically, I think Paul means for Christians to begin to form habits, proactively using prayer and the scriptures and our relationships with each other to help us grow and mature as followers of Jesus. And that's the letter to the Ephesians. Very powerful. It's where Paul summarizes the whole gospel story and how it should reshape every part of our life story. Not so good. So today we're, we're going to take a step right into the, the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. This is a church that Paul had planted among non-Jews. Now, uh, to be clear, this, I know I just said it, but um, I'm not trying to repeat myself, but ju- I just want to be real clear that this is a letter to Christians. And so the things that Paul says are true of the reader, these are things that are true of every Christian. We will use this letter to the Ephesian church as a backdrop as we examine God's kingdom. And so we're starting to study on the book of Ephesians, but what we're really looking at is the kingdom of God. This big theme, this big picture, this uh, thing that, as Dom alluded to during worship, that Jesus brought to earth as he came down in the form of a human. So we're going to study God's kingdom, which is also God's family, and we're going to look at it by dividing it up into three parts. And so today we start in kind of the introduction of part one. Part one is kingdom kids, and we're going to examine God's adoption of each of us as his own children. And then there's part two. The second part to the series is called kingdom family, and we're going to look at God's family plans as we grow together in Jesus as a family, what that looks like. And then there's a third part of this series we're doing on God's kingdom, and that's, we're calling that kingdom come. And that's a look at God's kingdom plans as we go with our Father out into the world in His love. And we know that God is a God of love. He's always out, always seeking, always reaching in love, and we're invited into that. And so those are the three parts of this series, kingdom kids, kingdom family, and kingdom come. Now, Paul explains these things to the Christians in Ephesus by writing a letter about Jesus. The idea behind this letter, and the reason that Jesus is the theme of this letter, is that if we get Jesus, then we will get the Father. We'll understand the the nature of the Father. If we get Jesus, then we will know the love 
and the approval that the Father has for us. If we understand or we get Jesus, then we will get family and church and what community is supposed to look like. If we get Jesus, also we'll understand the heart of God for all nations. Now, conversely, if we don't get Jesus, then we miss it all. And so Paul starts off just by riffing about Jesus. The first 14 verses in the book of Ephesians make it obvious that this is not a letter about us, okay? Paul starts this letter to the church in Ephesus by carefully and clearly exalting Jesus. It's probably the most Christ-centered passage in all of Scripture. These 14 verses, the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1, uh, mention the name Jesus 14 times. So to be clear, the book of Ephesians is all about the glory and the work of Jesus. Now, as we learn about and respond to and even enjoy and grow in the glory and the work of Jesus, as we really dig into this letter, we will discover by the grace of God the truth about who we are in Christ. We'll find our place, if you will, in in the household of God. We will see our incredible place in the Father's kingdom as the King's children. So it's, it's only in Christ that we will see ourselves rightly as kingdom kids. And so last week, as, as Chad mentioned in announcements, Dom gave the prologue, kind of a, a preface to the series, a big overarching vision for the series. And today we're going to jump right into chapter one. And um, we'll be teaching and reading primarily from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. Now, the CSB is a newer translation, so you might have to just kind of look for it on your app. Um, if, you, if you're looking to buy a Bible, this might be a good season for you to buy a CSB Bible. It's very readable, and it's very accurate, um, and just, we just feel that it's, it's worthy for us to kind of center in on one translation for this particular series. And so uh, we're going to be reading right now from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He, pre- he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he has lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. And in him, in Christ, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we, who had already put our hope in Christ, we might bring praise to his glory. And in him also, in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you also believed, you were sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit 
The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. Church, this is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your incredible love. God, today it is a a joy and a blessing and an honor to be able to come before You and to, to come into Your Word now. We pray, God, that You would bless and anoint the teaching of Your Word and that You would bless and anoint the hearing of Your Word. That we would grow and stand up into our identities in Christ. God, we just say we love You. Lord, help us to see ourselves as kingdom kids as we examine our good Father and we examine the love of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Paul starts this whole letter off by establishing his authority as an apostle. Now, an apostle is a word that was used. It's not just one of those weird church words, like we have a lot of weird Christian words that only get used in the context of church. Nowadays, apostle is a church word, right? It's a biblical word. But back in the Greco-Roman word, the, world, the word apostle was, would have been used not just in the church, but in culture. Uh, this is a person who is sent out with important high-level orders. And they had received an order, and they had received instruction, and they had been given authority to see this order carried out. And so this would be a person who bridged the gap between the rulers and the common people. Um, And is a person that's familiar with places and people of power. And so an apostle, whether it was secular or even in the church, they carried an inherent authority because of the access that they had, uh, the orders that they had, the, the directive that they had from the one who was in authority. Now, New Testament apostles, all of the apostles in the New Testament are men chosen by God and empowered uh, in a special way by God. These apostles spoke from God in a way that no other person speaks. It's important for us to see this because not all early church leaders were apostles. For example, um, in Colossians chapter 1, we see Paul introduce himself, and he introduces Timothy, and we see a distinction here. Look at verse 1 in Colossians 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. Okay, he's establishing his authority as the author of this letter. And then he says, and Timothy, our brother. Okay, he's, he's drawing a distinction between his, his role as an apostle and Timothy, who's a fellow brother in Christ. And then he addresses it to the saints of the church of Colossae. See, Paul's an apostle, Timothy's not. Now, Timothy was deeply loved by the apostle Paul, and he was deeply respected by Paul and the early church. Timothy was a gifted teacher. He was a, uh, an anointed um, church leader. Timothy was instrumental in the life and the growth of the early church. But Timothy was not an apostle. He didn't carry the same authority. He didn't have the same special mission by God in the words that he spoke. And so it's good for us to see Paul uh, express this confidence in his identity. Because we have to understand that Paul's not bragging when he says that, right? He's not like Paul the apostle and and here's here's a little Timothy here, you know. He's he's not like, like lording his authority over others. He's not being arrogant. Listen, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus uh, from jail. He's incarcerated as he writes this. And so he's got, he's got no reason to, to brag, right? He's just in, in prison right now. See, Paul only cares about his title and his authority to the extent that, enables, that it enables the gospel to advance, that it would enable the gospel to transform the people in Ephesus reading this letter, that it would enable the gospel to, to form the church with these transformed people and build a community with these transformed people. 
He only cares about his authority uh, in so much as the gospel is advanced uh, throughout all of history, as even we're looking at this letter today. This letter anointed by God, penned by the hand of Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul the Apostle. See, as an apostle, Paul had been given a special message and a special mission. Now, Paul's message is this mystery that he's always referring to. Uh, and, and this message is the truth, this mystery is the truth that God's love compels God to save, adopt, and change. Save, adopt, and change sinful people into his holy kingdom kids. All of this happens through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is like the most distilled version of the gospel that I could, could get here in one sentence. That God's love compels him to save, adopt, and change sinful people into kingdom kids through Jesus Christ. Now, that's Paul's message. Paul's mission is to spread this truth to all people, even non-Jews. And so here's Paul writing this letter to the Gentiles, this non-Jewish church. And this message is so important that Paul writes it himself. Uh, the practice of a person in power writing letters themselves is seen throughout history. Most people in power have other people that can write for them, right? Usually do. However, when something is significant, we see throughout uh, history that in order to emphasize the importance of a matter, sometimes a leader or the person with all the power will write a letter himself. Roman Caesars did it all the time. Regardless of what the letter said, the fact that Caesar wrote it meant that you better do whatever is inside the letter, right? So you knew that you were going to change course and do whatever's in this letter even before you opened it. Why? Because Caesar had written it himself. Uh, we see that throughout history being played out. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, he, he operated his entire military campaign. If you've ever read about that, it's mind-boggling. How did he do it? Through letters. Abraham Lincoln, same thing, through letters. Out to his generals, correcting them, begging them to take action, Right? The point is, if you receive a letter from someone in authority, like the president, it's important. That's, that's saying a lot in just the hand that wrote the letter. It carries weight. And so Paul identifies his authority. And then, once he identifies his authority, he jumps right into his main point. And he starts this letter by retelling and rehearsing and celebrating the love of God through the work of Jesus Christ. He starts just telling us, gushing about the Father's love for his children, about this loving invitation into his family. And Paul starts this whole thing off by pointing us to Jesus. Everything happens in Christ. Everything. Paul says, in Christ, ten different times in the first twelve verses. Ten times. It's in Christ where we discover our true purpose. In Christ where we discover our identity. It's in Christ where we discover how we're to think and feel and live as Christians. What it means to be a Christian is to have our identity wrapped up in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so, as we study Ephesians, we will make and see much of Jesus. Our Father, the King, right? Our Father is the King. He has sent His one and only Son to save us. Picture this. Just, just think about that image for a minute. The king, who's the king of all kings, the ultimate authority, the creator, he has a son, and he sends his one son, his firstborn son, the true and rightful heir of the throne. The older son has been sent by the father to bring us, rebels, orphans, people in rebellion outside of the family. He sends his older son out to bring us into the father's house. 
See, the Father's love goes so far as to strip us of all rebellion and adopt us into his household as his own children. See, the king has given his kids the keys to the kingdom. He's given us everything. And so our lives are totally changed by that. The gospel is a truth and a reality for us that completely changes us. And so now we spend our lives walking as children of the king. We're kingdom kids. See, the king is our father. Guys, do you understand the privilege that comes with being the son or daughter of a king? There's tremendous privilege in that. As kingdom kids, we're given every good thing. Every good thing. As kingdom kids, we're given full access to our Father, who is the King. We have access to the the throne room of God. As kingdom kids, we're invited into the passions and the pursuits of our Father, right? Like my dad would take me dirt bike riding. As a kingdom kid, you're going to go out onto the battlefield leading generals, right? You're doing the things that the Father does. You get to do kingly things as a kingdom kid, in other words. See, God is not like your earthly father, even those of you that have great dads, because he's never distracted or frustrated with us. He never goes out of town. He's never too busy to invest in us. God is a good father. We never need to beg for his attention or his provision. There's no need for that. In verse 3 of our, of our uh, text today in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells us that we have been given everything in Christ. Everything, right? So we've been given everything, right? So what have we been given in Christ? We've been given everything. So when, when you're like begging God for something, it, it's good to remember that you've been given everything in Christ. You, you're fully equipped, in other words. God hasn't withheld any good thing. God's not like our earthly fathers. He doesn't hold anything back from us. Now, this ought to form our identity. This should change the way we think about ourselves. This idea that God has withheld nothing from us. Our identity as Christians is that we are generously loved children of God. That's what verse 5 says in Ephesians 1. It says that's who we are. You are generously loved by God. That's the place where our identity is formed Christian. This is the place where our confidence comes from. This is where our hope comes from. See, with this in mind, here's the big paradigm shift for us. we got to kind of shift gears a little bit from the Holy Spirit series into studying the book of Ephesians. As we go from the Holy Spirit series, we have to shift from this idea of what God has given us, right? All summer long, we like celebrated and received and rejoiced in uh, this gift of the Holy Spirit. And just enjoying that, exploring that. Now we have to shift gears from what God has given us. Now Paul makes this transition. It's like another step we take into now who we are in Christ. In light of what God has given you, who am I? Who am I? And we're going to be looking at Jesus, and we're going to discover our place, our identity by the grace of God in Christ. Because who we are flows from whose we are. God has adopted us into his family. We are the king's own children. And as kingdom kids, our father has given us all of the love and blessing imaginable. He's given it all to us. And so our lives are not spent begging God for more of himself, but by us yielding more of ourselves to him. See, what is true of us is that we're children of God, approved children, Loved children, favored children, 
Now you're like, oh yeah, Billy, and I know all that. Listen, you don't know all that because our earthly fathers probably weren't very good about helping us feel approved and loved and favored all the time. Not all of us anyway. So listen, I have five kids, okay? I don't know a lot about parenting, but I do have five kids. I'm like on the upward curve of what you learn. My youngest is three and my oldest is going to be 16 uh, this year. Lord, have mercy. Now, at what point did my children become my children? That sounds a silly question, right? At what point did they become my kids? At what point did they finally earn a place in my family? Doesn't that sound weird, asking questions like that about my own kids? When did they earn my love? Now, it's, it's funny to ask it that way. Listen, I'm an intensely selfish person, but by the grace of God, But I wholeheartedly, in spite of that, I wholeheartedly accepted, loved, and started constantly thinking about each one of my kids the moment they entered my life. See, my kids entered my family 100% completely, fully mine. They were my kids. Some were adopted, so my kids were adopted. Some were formed by God in my wife's womb. But they didn't need to prove their value to me by doing chores before I would accept them. They didn't need to prove their faithfulness by caring for me when I needed help, right? They didn't need to get to work and start doing my work out there so I could, you know, give them more and more love or something. Listen, God brought my kids into my family. God did that. And he gave me a heart of love for them. Now, this, isn't, this is crazy, but God brings his kids into his family as well. And we are brought by God into the kingdom of God into God's family, not because what you brought to the table, not because you're a super good Christian, not because you finally made that decision, I'm going to get my act together. That has nothing to do with you being a kingdom kid. You're a kingdom kid because before the foundation of the earth, God the Father loved you so much that he chose you and sent his son Jesus to earth to pay the penalty for your sin so that you could be brought near to him. That is the only reason that you're saved. You didn't figure it out. You're saved as a complete act of grace. In Christ, we are kingdom kids. This isn't something you earn. This is who you are. We must understand that each of us functions from a place of our identity. Who are you? Each of us acts and reacts to life based on who we think we are, who we perceive ourselves to be. And our sense of identity or how we understand ourselves, it affects everything. Our sense of identity affects the way we think and we act. It affects the way we interact with one another. It defines our relationship, right? Identity affects how we deal with guilt, how we deal with shame. It affects our sense of belonging or our sense of exclusion or withdrawal. Our sense of identity can affect whether we have hope or a sense of despair in life. Our sense of identity affects everything, And all of us, every one of us, has an identity that helps form our perspectives and our decisions in life. In fact, our sense of identity is complex and multifaceted. We're we're complicated, you might say. We base our identity typically on many different things. Uh, For many of us, we base our identity on primarily positive things, right? It's not uncommon for those with money to base their sense of identity on finances, right? Income or bank account balance can help shape our self-perceptions and shape our interactions and uh, shape our actions even. For some, it's appearance, right? You look in the mirror and you're just like, hey, all right, you know? (laughs) Or what you wear. 
right? Or some people cling to a brand. Well, I wear this kind of shoes. That means I'm this, right? And that affects who you are and how you view other people. Our career, our position, our influence in life. It can affect who, who we allow ourselves to give ourselves to or, you know, like whether we feel above or below. All of that. So it's part of our identity that's formed in us based on that. Sometimes it's our achievements that help form our identity. We could form our identity around our friends, around our relationships, who likes us, who we have access to. Some people form their identity around their spouse, their marriage. Some of us uh, form our identities around our parenting, right, and our kids and all that that entails. Some of us form our identity around our schooling and the way we school our kids. See, there are an endless number of influences in our lives that help form our sense of identity. And see, these are often like good things. It's not like they're bad things. These are positive things. These are things that we've worked hard for, typically, or we've earned even. And they're good things that we should be proud of and receive them as as gifts from God. But here's the point in all of this. I'm not saying that because they're bad. The point is this. What happens when we've formed our identity around these things, and then these things change? What happens when these things change, or, or, or they go away? What happens when we lose the job, or the career, or the paycheck? What happens when the bank account shrinks? What happens when our marriage fails or our spouse dies if our identity was found there? What happens when the kids move out of the house? What happens when age catches up and our looks start to change? See, if our identity is based on anything other than Jesus, then our identity is unstable because everything is undermined when the good things in life change or go away. Now, if we're not very careful then life's inevitable changes will leave us wondering who we really are. If our identity is built on anything that can change, if we are anchored to people or we're anchored to money or we're anchored to life's good circumstances, we can become disillusioned and set adrift once the people, money, and circumstances change or go away. So if we're not very careful, we'll spend our entire life trying to maintain the good things that give us our identity, right? Holding on to the past, right? Or we hold on to our good looks, or we cling to our finances. We wish for things to go back to how they should be. If life was just like the 1950s, right? No, listen, that's not, God's not calling us to wish for the 50s. God's calling us to enjoy Him and obey Him right now. God's here moving us there. He's not back there. And so allow your identity to be formed in Christ here, now, in the present. Because when our world starts to fall apart, we panic, right? The career man will, will sacrifice family relationships and family time in order to please the supervisors at work, to hold on when things start crumbling at work. The beauty queen, she'll start getting surgery after surgery to hold on to her identity, The business owner starts borrowing and borrowing and then fudging the numbers and and, and compromising in ways that don't bring glory to God. See, what we draw our identity from eventually becomes so important to us that we will do whatever it takes to hold on to it because without it, we don't know who we are. And we panic. We become desperate. And here's the challenge with that. Here's Here's the problem, the underlying problem is that we end up deifying these things in our lives. We exalt them. Essentially, we worship them. We're willing to sacrifice good and right things in order to exalt these lesser things that we're clinging to that, are, that forms our identity. Parenting becomes the ultimate. Holding on to money becomes the ultimate. 
Good looks or youthfulness becomes the ultimate. Now, those things were all given by God as a blessing to us, and we should receive them as such and rejoice over them even. But none of these good things can bear the responsibility of Godhood. None of them were created by God to be God. So none of these good things are rightly able to form how we identify ourselves. It's wrong for us to form our identity on anything other than Christ. Because building identity on anything apart from God is completely unstable. And we know that because building a culture or a society on anything other than God is unstable. Look at the culture and the society that we currently live in. So many of us do have this tendency to form our identity on the good things in life. But it's also true that others in here, and I I have a tendency to do this, we do the exact opposite. We tend to uh, form our identity or parts of our identity on what we don't have, and we see ourselves as less than. Uh, maybe, Maybe these are the people that don't have money, or they're not good-looking in their own eyes, right? Or they don't have influence or power or a place of honor in their life. Or these are the people that maybe build their identities on the fact that they don't have talents or they don't have special gifts. Now, these people tend to identify as unworthy or unwanted or unable or not good enough, right? Because we only see our weaknesses. We only see ourselves or ever feel mediocre at best. We say we're being honest with ourselves, We only see our shortcomings and our unworthiness. And so maybe when I was reading the introduction to this letter, if you're this person, and I read Paul addresses this letter to the faithful saints in Ephesus, maybe some of you are like, well, he ain't talking to me because I'm not faithful and I'm not a saint. Everyone knows that. See, why would we say that? Why would we feel that? I'm not faithful and I'm not a saint. See, the Bible identifies every Christian as God's holy people. We're all saints if we're in Christ. But see, we don't believe this when our identity is based on what we have earned for ourselves in life, and it is not based on who we are in Christ. See, that's the central issue with both ways that we tend to find our identity. We fail to grasp who we are. Some of us cling to the successes and the blessings for our identity, and others among us find our identity in the low places in life. This is what we see in Jesus' story of the prodigal, we call the story the prodigal son, right? The story of the prodigal son. You have two sons, and the one son, which we call the prodigal son, he takes what he can from his dad, and he runs off to squander it. He's like, Dad, I want the cash out. I want the inheritance, and he splits, leaves, no longer a part of the dad's life. Now, the older brother remains, and Jesus tells us that um, he stays in his place of wealth and authority. He's working hard to feel worthy. And as we know the story, right, the prodigal son goes out and he squanders everything, throws it all away, and he becomes ashamed, place of shame. As he wakes up, he's eating out of a pig trough, eating with pigs. Now the other brother, the older brother, continues to strive to earn the security and the wealth and the privilege of his father's house. Again, he's trying to earn that place by proving that he's a faithful son. The prodigal finally returns home. He's like, you know what, I'm just going to go home. Not as a son. I'm going to go home as a slave. And I'm going to beg my dad and ask him, say, hey, look, I I know I've blown it all. I know you don't have to regard me as a son, but can I at least be a slave, right? See, what has happened in that moment is he's thinking that that's all he deserves because he's formed an identity that is low. He's formed his identity from an undeserving place. That man was made a son of his father, not because he was good at being a son. He was made a son of his father by being born into his father's family. You see the difference in identity there. See, the other brother 
bristles when he sees his dad welcome the rebellious son back and puts him in a place of honor, right? Restoring him as a son. The other brother's like, what the heck? This undisciplined, undeserving son is restored, right? This is the guy. He's like, I've worked hard for this. I've proven myself faithful here. See, the faithful son, he had formed his identity on the idea that he had worked hard and earned the good things and position in his father's household. See, both sons have formed their identity outside of the father's love and acceptance. That's the point of the prodigal son story. See, this is the broken way that people find their identity outside of God's family. And unfortunately, even God's kingdom kids sometimes fall into this broken way of thinking. Church, today, God is challenging us to know who we are. This season, over and over again, you're going to be challenged by the Holy Spirit to know who you are. Who are you? Who do you think you are? Stand up, son, and walk in your sonship. Be who you are. And listen, if you've responded to the love of God by putting your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, if that's you, right, you've confessed your sins to God, and you've been born again, God has set you apart and adopted you into his own family. You are a kingdom kid. We're kingdom kids. And as kingdom kids, look at what the Apostle Paul says is true of you right now today. It's the end of our passage, chapter, Ephesians 1, verse 13. He says, when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit. Say, so here's the transition from the Holy Spirit series into the book of Ephesians. He's given you the Holy Spirit, who he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that He will give us the inheritance He promised and that He has purchased us to be His own people. Why did He do that? He did this so that we would praise and glorify Him. Paul, pointing it back to worship. You were created to know God and worship God. He's given you the Holy Spirit to remind you of who you are so that you can celebrate the love of God that you've received and that you know through the love of Jesus Christ. We just spent the whole summer looking at and celebrating the Holy Spirit. We're going to spend this fall for a few months here looking at and celebrating Jesus and discovering who we are in Christ. Now, look, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you don't know the love of the Father, you don't have the Holy Spirit. And so in this series, you need to hear that you have a good Father who loves you. You need to hear that God has done everything necessary to adopt you into His family. Listen, today the Father is inviting you in. Today the Father is inviting you to receive his love and acceptance and his adoption. He wants to bring you into his family. And so for you, the book of Ephesians, as we study this, you're going to hear all about this amazing gift of salvation and this new life that is offered to you all through Jesus Christ, in Christ. And so for those of us who do know Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. Let this be a season of allowing the Spirit to form or perhaps reform our identities. Because over the next several months, we're going to be looking at who Jesus is and who we are in Christ. Everything stems from the idea and the reality that we are children of God. First and foremost, we are children of God. This is the starting point for every facet of our Christian identity. And so as we go into worship right now, I'm just going to quickly put some things up on the screen for you to think about. You know, it's, it's good not just to hear stuff, but to see stuff. And as we're worshiping God, like celebrate these things. Ask God to show you and help you to stand up into the reality of who you are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are a faithful saint. If you're in Christ, you are blessed 
with every spiritual blessing. If you're in Christ, you have been chosen by the Father. In Christ, you've been adopted by God. You're, you're now part of His family. In Christ, you've been redeemed. You are loved and doted over by God. In Christ, you are spiritually wealthy from God's inheritance. In, in Christ, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. In Christ, you are a kingdom kid. So today, as we worship, we celebrate and we respond to the love of God, all the things that God has done so that we might know Him. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and God, we thank You for this truth about who we are in Christ. We thank You, God, that we don't meet You in the middle. We don't, we don't do anything, meet You anywhere. You come and find us. And so, Lord, this morning, I just want to pray, God, for maybe for those that are that are still out there on their own, that they would look up and see you. Thank you, God, that you pursue the rebel. You pursue the orphan. This morning, God, help us to respond to the reality of your love in Christ Jesus. We love you, God. Thank you for making us your kids. Help us to see you as our Father. In Jesus' name, amen.